Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Greetings, bold adventurers, and welcome to your next Valiant Quest, albeit a reasonably brief one with very few major challenges. Welcome to Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Today our journey has us organising traffic to reduce congestion and air pollution. That's one for the city listeners there. We've got another neat idea for sustainable living. It'll keep your domestic heating and cooling costs down and hopefully extend the life of the planet for a few more years at least. And we have some fancy medical tech that'll be some welcome news for people managing cancer. And here to take us through the next 45 minutes of our expedition into the future, with digital map unfolded and spread out on the virtual table, it's our intrepid tech guide, Matt Dickerson. How are you, Matt? Well, I feel very relaxed to sit here and spend 45 minutes sitting down and not being active because I've been very active this morning playing pickleball. Yeah, right. And I haven't heard about pickleball much until a few I've days ago. I've seen it creeping into uh, some TV shows and stuff like that. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen it on a couple of things. Never really knew what it was. It just looks like uh, a version of tennis. Well, it's actually, I would describe it as a combination between tennis and ping pong or, or table tennis. I think many people call ping pong. Yeah, okay. It seems like a combination between those two. But the reason I wanted to mention it was linked to technology was that it seems to me that this game is an admission that we've gone too far in technology with tennis. Ah. When you go back to tennis <laughs> in the 70s and 80s, you had nice little wooden rackets and there seemed to be a lot of skill involved, a lot of serving and volleying people at the net and now you seem to have people just standing back 10 metres beyond the baseline, it seems. They have to because that ball's just travelling so fast. That's the thing. And they're just absolutely having a slog fest. And you, you saw in the Australian Open, some of the rallies were going for 30 and shots, 40 shots. It was yeah. just crazy. And I'm not sure that's the most riveting tennis. But the thing is, if I'm playing against you and you're a half-decent player, well, it's not much fun because you just blow me off the court because you can mm. hit the ball so much faster. And when I looked at it, if you go back to some of those old days, back in the, the 70s and such, then the racket area was about 420 square centimetres. You go to a modern racket, they're typically 710 square centimetres. Oh, they're almost doubled. Almost double. that's right. So a lot of power, and I think it might have been Prince about 1976, sometime in the mid-70s, that came out with an oversized racket. And that's when things started to get a bit different because they found new materials because there used to be timber before and mm. you couldn't go much bigger with timber because timber was pretty it was heavy. Just crack and, and, yeah, 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 a bit uh, too heavy. Yeah. But now, technology-wise, we've got carbon fibre and graphite. We haven't had titanium heads for a while, synthetic strings. They actually do wind tunnel tests on the rackets to make them more aerodynamic. What? So when the player <laughs> is swinging the racket Shoot. through the air... It's cutting that air. Exactly. Yeah, I don't think wow. that would have any difference at all with me playing the game, but obviously for professionals, you've got that side of it. And you've even got smart rackets now that actually have sensors built into them so that during a game, I don't know if this is legal in terms of playing competition tennis, but literally during a game or a practice match, you could actually go and look at a screen to see how much spin you're putting on the ball, what your racket was doing, <laughs> where you're hitting it in terms of the sweet spot. So all of that technology means that it's just very difficult to have a social game. So picket ball. So now we go to pickleball, pickle where ball. they use a rock and a <laughs> flat rock. Uh, and, they <laughs> and it's a bit like that. I remember years ago when I used to play a bit more golf, if I was practicing golf, 
I'd get a plastic ball that had holes in it so it yeah. wasn't very aerodynamic yeah. and then I'd go in my backyard and I could swing as hard as I like and the ball would only go 20 or 30 metres. Some people that play with me know that when I'm on the golf course it only goes 20 <laughs> or 30 metres. that anyway, yeah. <laughs> but that obviously reduces the aerodynamics of it and that's what a pickleball looks like, an oversized one of those. And then the rackets are just, it seems like a bit of a slab of timber, a bit like a, a table tennis racket. And so you're not being able to hit the ball powerfully. It's very popular apparently in some older homes, some aged care homes, because you're not having someone blown off the court, you're not having the ball hit so hard, you've got to be sprinting across and getting it. And apparently some of the grandparents are living in these homes, when their grandkids come, it's a game they can play together, yeah, otherwise okay. the grandkids would just have them running all over the court. So it's a, almost a bit of an admission that maybe we went too far with the yeah. technology to improve it. And it's you can a imagine game for the people. Yeah, imagine the manufacturers are all saying, well, if we can get that little edge, our racket will be more popular, the better players will use it, we'll sell more rackets. So I get that continuous focus on improvement, but then it's gone so far now that we've had to invent pickleball. Well, where's pick, pickleball technology going to take us <laughs> yeah, now, I wonder? I did actually say, when I, when I picked up one of the rackets there and I was playing, I said, oh, are there any rackets better than others? Well, these ones over here, these are the expensive ones and they've got a yeah. better sweet spot. I went, oh, no, it started, it started. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> And the show's over. All right. Okay, folks, have you got your boots laced up? Let's get trekking. Ever dreamed of having your own personal jetpack? Well, of course you have. That was a rhetorical question. Ever since that Bond movie Thunderball, jetpacks, well, they've been another one of those landmarks to tell us that we've arrived in the future. Well, Thunderball jetpacks are now so yesteryear, folks. The whole concept has evolved entirely. It's now a jet suit that you covet. And we now do races. Where else but? But in Dubai. Matt, can I see you? I can see you fidgeting in your seat over there. Tell us all about this new sensation. Well, the good part is that the 20th of February is the date. So we've got time still. Our listeners have got time still. To, to train up and get yourself a jet suit. <laughs> get organised. get over there. That's right. Now, I think you actually can't go and get your own jet suit it seems to be one of those uh, competitions where you get the equipment supplied because there's right. one manufacturer that seems to be providing all gravity It'll come industries. down to the skill of the driver. Apparently, yes. Right. And who is least afraid of dying, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's all I'm thinking of. Because <laughs> this thing here is a thousand horsepowers of jet engine strapped on your back. What could possibly go wrong with that? <laughs> as you're ducking and weaving through the buildings of Dubai. And as you're racing other people, trying to, I don't know, take them out, keep away from them, whatever you might do. Now I'm imagining you actually don't go over the city or anything like that. It's going to be done over water or something, surely. Well, this is Dubai, so you never know. But yeah, right, okay. Given the fact that it's done in combination with the International Boat Show, the Dubai International Boat Show, which is not at the same time, I'm imagining exactly the same thing, that they might do it either over the water, so mm. that if you crash it might soften it a little bit, but depending yeah. on how fast you're travelling, maybe yeah, not much. there's a chance at least you'll survive. That's right, until the jet suit's too heavy and then they drag <laughs> you under, you or bottom. it might be out somewhere that's near the water, they so it's a bit dissol- of a flower. dissolvable straps or whatever. <laughs> maybe, that's right. <laughs> so it does sound quite fascinating. Now, we have seen them before. We've seen different companies say, look at this, we've finally got a jet suit. We've obviously seen Iron Man, again, mm. in the fantasy land like James the Bond. The American military is developing them as well. Yeah, that's right. So they are being developed, but I'm just not sure they're at the point yet where I can say, I'm just ducking downtown, hey, to grab a bottle of milk. Yeah. I'll just put my jet suit on and off I go. But maybe that's where we're headed. Well, I had a look on YouTube. They've got wings and everything. Yeah, they're pretty cool. Yeah. Aren't they? <laughs> you look a bit like a transformer. 
<laughs> well, I was actually thinking of the Toy Story, Buzz Lightyear. Yeah, Buzz Lightyear. That's right. He's it's got little definitely wings. got that Buzz Lightyear flavour about it. And of course, Woody says that you can't fly, and he demonstrates to everyone that he can fly, but Woody demonstrates... Falling or, with style. Falling with style, that's right. So Gravity Industries, their aim is to revolutionise human flight, and Jet Powered Suits is how they're going to do it, which is fantastic. It was founded by Richard Browning back in 2017, so they've got a little bit of history there, not a lot of history, but enough history to be doing something, but they must have convinced someone that had some WHNS or some risk assessment that said, no, we think this is okay. So, <laughs> no. So they must no, be this good is enough. Dubai, right? So if you've got enough money, it'll happen, <laughs> well, and they definitely right. have enough money. <laughs> yeah, you might be right there. So I'm really interested to see what happens. End of February, keep an eye out for it, see how many people survive, hopefully there's no injuries hopefully there's no crashes there but i just yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated to see how it goes and if this works if people get there and they fly and everything works the way it should work then people might say well gee if they can do that with it then why couldn't i have one at home and i just mm. drop it on the way i go i don't know what licensing you would need to be able to put on a jet suit it's just oh, like technology's moving faster than the legal system can keep up yeah you're probably right so <laughs> keep an eye out for that i'm not sure james and i'll be there but we'll see how we go with we that might crowdfunding. watch the replay later on <laughs> covered a fair bit about wearable tech uh, and the competition between manufacturers to jam health monitoring functions into smartphones has nearly gotten out of hand. I guess, Matt, a discerning consumer might start to wonder just how fair dinkum this all is. Is it all good data? Well, it's all reasonably good data. And it is quite fascinating, isn't it? You look at a little tiny watch and what it's got built into it, and then it can start to give you some impressive information. So that's mm. great. You and I go for a little jog and we look and go, oh, look at that. We did that better or we changed yeah. some of our metrics Changing there. Our heart rate and whatnot. Yeah. All those things. So there have been some tests done recently just to compare them to some equipment, some expensive equipment that you might get strapped to that goes bing at the appropriate time. And how does that compare to what you get from your smartwatch? So one of the tests they did was a VO2 max test. Now, typically to get a VO2 max test, you strap on a mouthpiece. You're basically recording all the air that's going in and out as you're breathing. Mm. You then get on a treadmill or an exercise bike and basically go for your max for maybe 15 minutes. And out of that, you'll get your VO2 max. Now, this is very important for Olympic-level athletes. I mean, anyone really wants to check that out. And your watch can give you a VO2 max. I can look up right now and see what my VO2 max is. I haven't been strapped to any equipment like that. But how accurate is it? And so in the tests, they've found that typically the maximum discrepancy they were getting between what your watch would show and what you would get if you were strapped into all the equipment was about 10%. That's not bad Mm. because your watch actually uses some algorithms based on your heart rate and your movement to get an estimation of your VO2 max. To get within 10% based on that, I actually thought that wasn't too bad. So that's not too bad. You get to then look at your heart rate. Now, heart rate is one that was fairly accurate compared to strapping on something across your chest. And I remember many years ago, that was the only way you could get your heart rate was to have something that actually measured some electrical activity across your chest. A smartwatch does it by looking at the blood flow that's going through your wrist. I just find that fascinating. Now, the time when it's not that accurate is when you're out... Running, for example, a lot of movement of your arm or you're running, presumably if you're running at any sort of reasonable level, and the watch might move around, around a little bit. So sometimes that doesn't give you that accurate a measurement. You get a much more accurate measurement if you had something strapped on with your chest. But I find when I ride my bike, for example, I do wear a chest band, but my heart rate on my watch 
is very nearly identical at any time mm. I check it to my chest band, but my wrist isn't bouncing around that much on my watch. So when I'm on a bike as such. So yeah. when I'm out there riding, it's not going all over the place. So it's a bit different to running. But so they found that heart rate wasn't too bad. Then they started to look at things like your steps for the day and just measuring distance. Now, if you go for a run and you say, oh, look at that, I did a five-kilometre run, that's pretty accurate because it's using GPS. So in that case, it's good. Steps, though, eh, probably, again, that 10% discrepancy. Yeah, I've hit my step goal while I was travelling in a long trip <laughs> in the car once. Yeah, and yeah. I was wondering, what's happened there? You were very active in the car, obviously. <laughs> Maybe a lot of throttle and accelerator and then brake. And, yeah. So there are things like that. You've got to take them all with a slight grain of salt. One thing, though, that all the research, all the comparisons they were doing, one thing they found was that it can be useful in terms of a comparison. So if you look at various things and say, right, this, these are all my numbers that my smartwatch is giving me, they may not compare to expensive equipment 100% accuracy, but they'll compare relatively accurately on a day-by-day basis. So if I say, right, I want to get my resting heart rate down, I want to do some training and look at that, then whatever my resting heart rate is, it may not be 100% accurate, but I can see the trend. I can see the movement in mm. that. So all of those things you might measure. Same when you do an ECG. You can do an ECG with your watch. What it gives you may not be absolutely perfect compared to a normal machine, but when you then look at that change that you might have, same with blood pressure, when you strap on and, and get some electronic blood pressure monitoring, same type of thing there. So if you're looking at any of those, maybe not take the numbers as gospel, but look at the changes. changes yeah. yeah. So that's where the quite reasonable. But I still find the level of accuracy you're getting out of it for something that's so small that can withstand water and bouncing around as you run and yeah. then just charge it up and you keep going. I think that's fairly impressive. They're clever gadgets. Here's a shout-out to all the awesome people currently fighting cancers in one form or another. It's got to be one of the toughest things you'll ever do. Even when you've won early battles, you can never truly relax as dormant tumours can wake up and turn your world upside down once and again. Catching them early is the key and remaining vigilant must be so emotionally exhausting. We're still some way from a cure for cancer, but Matt, are new developments in tech able to offer us a little more confidence for those in uh, remission at least? Well, let's go back to that point you made there. We haven't got a cure for cancer as such. But there are so many cancers, aren't there? There are That's so many right. different types of cancers and so many different parts of our body. And when we say we don't have a cure, well, we have treatments. Mm. And I suppose that's the important part here. There are different treatments depending on where the cancer is. And, of course, early detection is one of the crucial parts of it. But there are people who have had prostate cancer and then they have their prostate removed and then they say, well, I'm basically cancer-free now. So it's close enough to a cure. But when people are having some of that initial treatment – the really important part is to monitor what's happening with it. Mm. Now, typically the way you do that is you might be having some ray treatment, some chemotherapy, whatever it might be, and then you might go back in once every couple of weeks, maybe once a week in the early stages there to see if anything's happening. You've got a growth. Let's see if we can shrink that growth. We might have to operate. We might have to remove it. But let's shrink it a bit before we remove it. But you're still only monitoring it on a semi-regular basis, Mm. even if it might be weekly. It sounds often, but not perfectly. This particular concept is a wearable device that continuously monitors the size of the tumour. So in other words, you'd put some, it's a a kind of a flexible skin, you'd stick it on over where the tumour is, and that's got enough smarts in it to put a small signal out to get to your smartphone. 
and then that smartphone will take that data and send it off to your doctor, and that can give a continuous reading of the size of that tumour. Yeah, wow. And he changes it. Now, there's a few limitations. It only works on tumours that are close to the skin, so if you had a tumour that was in somewhere in maybe your organs around your body there that was a bit deeper, it's not good enough to do that yet, but this is the first iteration of this. But again, the idea of just sticking something on, we'll keep doing the treatments, and that will give us feedback about what's happening with that tumour, that, to me, from a medical perspective, doctors would say, fantastic. What sort of treatment are we giving this person? How much? Because you don't want to go and bombard them with so much treatment that you know you're going to kill it, but it's going to make the person incredibly sick. But you want to get enough that might be having an impact on the tumour. Yeah, and it's I such assume a, a fine line to tread too. That's the thing, the fine line that they've got to tread. So this gives you the ability to keep monitoring it and then make changes in the treatment almost real time as you're going to see what's happening there. So pretty clever, and, and this is all part of it. Talk about a, a cure for cancer, that's so much money being spent on cancer. Things like this, we might say, well, it's not curing cancer, but by monitoring it, mm. you're being more effective in the treatments that other people come up with. Yeah, and I just wonder, okay, so it's only for things that are almost superficial or you know, towards the surface of the skin there. I wonder how long before we're able to use similar technology, just modified to detect stuff through bone even. you know, mm. just um, We're heading in amazing directions. And obviously there was a need for this to say we need better monitoring, so someone's come up yeah. with this concept. So then next logical step might be, here, swallow this little thing and it'll sit down, maybe not swallow because it might come out, but maybe insert this little thing and we'll just monitor that with that particular device. So there's all sorts of other potential products that well, might come Well, for at least that, the people who this could help out, it's one thing that they, they don't have to think about it all the time. Mm. They know that they're being watched yep. and that hopefully someone can pick it up um, as things start to change. Yeah. So, hey, positive signs for the future. Absolutely right. Here's one for the Microsoft users. How closely have you been paying attention to your emails? And I mean, not the content, but the formatting. Notice the change in font. Folks, the winds of change are blowing, and they might just knock your fonting socks off. I remember last time they did something like this. I knew something was different, but I didn't really pick up on it. I just figured I'd bumped a button on the toolbar accidentally or something. Matt, the folks at Microsoft, they're playing with our heads again. They are, and I didn't know it was such a big issue the font that we have on our screen. Well, the last time it used to be, it was, it started off as Times New Roman. Correct. And then we went to, now, how do you say it? Well, that's the, <laughs> I had this discussion with someone the other day. I say Calibri. Well, I say Calibri, and I was doing a radio interview, and the interviewer said, oh, you is that how you meant to Calibri? pronounce it? That's right. He said, I've always said Calibri. I went, oh, well, it could be Calibri or Calibri. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the Aussie bogan in both of us that says yeah. Calibri rather than Calibri. <laughs> so effectively, we didn't. Oh, I didn't know that we'd had this, such a big issue with Calibri as a problem font. And so I thought, well, why is this such a big issue? Now, Microsoft have said as our screens develop and as we get better screens, 4K, resolution on them we need a better font so we've had to come up with a, a better, better font, font. well and well, the, <laughs> well I, they've deemed that we need a better font they've maybe they're just mixing it up to keep it real maybe maybe but i i must admit i haven't been sitting there lately going ah oh, damn this font i just need something better i better change the <laughs> font because that just doesn't look good enough on my 4k screen have you noticed that it looks different though that, that there is slightly different like oh, there's a little tail on the l's i noticed and so going from times new roman to Calibri, I thought it was good. Times Your Own became a bit too 
common. It was like everything was Times New Roman, became boring. So when Calibro came along, I thought, oh, I do like that change because it just makes it look a bit different. But now, and I printed the document that I sent you some information on, I actually used the Aptos font for that particular segment. There. I'm not sure if you picked up on that being slightly different, but <laughs> it was just ever so slightly different in there. So back in 2007 was when Microsoft made the change to Calibri, and now here we are, 2024, they've made the change again. So they thought 17 years, that's a long enough time frame to change the font. And then when you're changing the font as a default font in all of your products, then mm, it's a big decision. What font do I use? Do I go and just grab another font? Do I go to Fonts R Us and say, I'll grab a font, thanks, that'll be $50. No problem, I'm just going to put that into every product that goes across the world. So they looked at a few. They had some potential replacements. They had Grandview, Seaford, Skeena, Tenorite, and Beerstat. Comic Sans didn't get a look in there? No, no, okay. too old, too yeah. old. It wasn't designed for 4K <laughs> screens. Uh, so they looked at those, and then they ended up choosing, as I said before, Aptos, which was none of those five they looked at, but Aptos is a subtle variation from Beerstat. Now, Steve Madison, you may not have heard of Steve Madison, but he's a renowned type designer. He created the final version of Aptos. So that's going to go on his gravestone, on his headstone, creator of Aptos. Definitely on his CV right now. But he's also the creator of Ariel, Courier New, and Times New Roman. So he's been a bit dirty the last 17 years, I reckon. Yeah. Because for 17 years, his Times New Roman had been sharted for this yeah. Calibri. Who, who came up with that Calibri? Who came up with a name that you can't even pronounce properly? <laughs> so now he's finally back in the game with Aptos being his font. So if you get a new version, if you've been using an old version or you haven't any online updates, you probably won't notice any change. But if you install a new version or maybe do some online updates of your Microsoft products, this will change. Your standard font will change to Aptos. Well, I've got to share with you, I um, do my notes on Google Docs mm. and they're not up to scratch yet. So I didn't pick up on it. I did see your note that uh, you changed the font slightly. Uh, but, um, yeah, I couldn't pick it up because we just don't have Aptos on uh, That's right. Google well, Project. and that would obviously not apply to Google Docs because they're not going to go and play ball with Microsoft. That's they're, right. They're not going to go and say... They're doing their own thing. <laughs> that's right. Marching to the beat of their own drum. <laughs> that's exactly They were right. going with Calibri, though. Calibri. I don't know. <laughs> the C1. <laughs> tomato, tomato. <laughs> so the other thing that's going to be interesting, a bit of controversy around this, is because it wasn't that long ago that the U.S. State Department mandated the use of Calibri for all documents. <laughs> so now when someone opened up their new Word is that document... because someone used Joker Inc. or something like that for a, an official document and people went, Probably this some, is terrible. I'm sure there was something there where someone, <laughs> someone had, had their to make a rule. Yep. So now when someone opened up their Word document, they're going to have to change it from the oh. default Aptos Back to Calibri to satisfy the U.S. State Department mandate if you work for the U.S. State Department. Goodness me. Keep an eye on it. It's an interesting change. I'm not sure if it's the biggest technological change we've ever seen, but I, I do <laughs> find it fascinating. And do you realise we've also reached nerd level 11 in reporting on this? <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually find it fascinating that they've deemed that you need to change it because of our screen technology. Yeah. And not so much worry about what you print, but the screen technology. Sounds like an excuse to me. Uh, okay, well, I'll give you that one. <laughs> they just wanted to change. <laughs> Sustainable living has become something of a boom industry. There are so many facets to it and so much scope for clever minds to develop a new and obscure innovation. Early on, it was the realm of hippies and meant sacrificing a lot of things that made life more comfortable. Now in 2024, though, living sustainably doesn't have to equate to martyrdom. 
We now have clever solutions like wax motor roof tiles to keep your house at a comfy temperature in the summer and winter using much less energy. Matt, wax motor roof tiles. I, it was actually, What's all this about? I was chuckling to myself as you said that. I'm thinking, just imagine sitting around a barbecue. Yeah, I've got some wax power roof tiles on my house. And they'd say, you're feeling okay? Do you need to have, <laughs> is that your last drink you're going to have for the day? So it's, it's interesting, power. isn't it? Now, one of the problems we've got, we've talked about this before, we're trying to create other ways to generate power because we want to replace coal-fired power across the world. So that's fine. But on the flip side of that, if we can use less power, then that sounds like a good thing as well. How do we For use sure. less power? A whole range of things we do. Even our lighting, we're using LED lighting these days instead of normal incandescent, so that's good. Lots of different ways we're trying to save power. About 50% of the power in an average home in the US, but I imagine it would apply for most countries, is used in keeping energy, or sorry, in energy and keeping our temperature at a comfortable temperature. We're not great at different temperatures, are we humans? We, like we used it. to remember the old days where you just used to have a fan, and if it was a hot day, you just experienced the hot day, but you stirred up the hot air, and it made things a little bit better. Well, if it was a bit hot, you'd open some windows and get a cross breeze. Yeah. It'd be cold, you close the windows. Those are the days where you used to play cricket outdoors and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> please, and then please. I realised, ah, oh, forty degree heat is that's too right. hot to be standing in. Here. So, if we can reduce the power usage, that's got to be a good thing as well. So then we'd have to produce as much power as we move to different ways of producing power. One of the ways you can do it is if you go into the ceiling space, most people have got insulation in their ceiling, but between the ceiling and their roof, it can get pretty hot or even pretty cold. So mm. if you can change that temperature gradient, then there's less of a temperature to try and keep out of the actual house part. Yeah. So there's different ways to do that. The latest way to do that is to use tiles that change as the temperature changes. Now, you say, well, that's it's great. Incredible. You're using a bunch of power to change those tiles as the temperature changes but no that would be silly so they're using as you said wax now this sounds incredibly <laughs> clever essentially what they've got I'm is just imagining filling up my gutters with melted wax <laughs> on a really really stinking hot day <laughs> so these tiles are absorbent of heat so that sounds great in winter but not so great in summer because you're absorbing lots of heat and then it's going to be filling up your void your roof void but then they've got louvers on them so the louvers open up to let that heat go. Of course, heat rises. So in the ceiling space, it would rather be out of that ceiling space than in the ceiling space. How do you do that? You have wax that changes phase at approximately 18 degrees Celsius. That's crazy. Now, you could change that temperature, obviously, if you decided that 20 was better or 16 was better, whatever. But the manufacturers said 18 degrees Celsius. So below 18 degrees Celsius, the louvers are closed. The tile absorbs heat whatever heat might be outside, in the outside air, to bring as much of that as possible into the house. Gets above 18 degrees Celsius, the wax changes phase, activates just ever so slight a motor that moves the actual louvers up, so now you've got a roof with lots of air gaps. Obviously, they're situated yeah. so rain can still come down, but you've got air gaps there where that hot air that's getting there, sitting in your ceiling, cleaning up your house, is all able to escape from the <laughs> roof. Sounds it That's amazing. Cool. Yeah. I thought it was absolutely But someone fantastic. had that idea. That, oh, let's, every individual tile, let's get every individual tile to have little louvers on them to let heat escape. And I, I started to think about the concept of solar panels on a roof, which many people do have. And I thought, I wonder how this would work for solar panels, but it still would 
be effective because a solar panel typically has an air gap between the solar panel and the roof where it's installed. So I can't see why you wouldn't still be able to have these underneath and still let that heat out. It Mm. wouldn't absorb as much heat during winter, during the cold months, because you're obviously being absorbed by the solar panels, but still it would still have the same concept. So I thought that would still work under those. If you can reduce the energy consumption, sorry, if you can reduce the heat and the coolth on the tiles, I don't know if that's a word. <laughs> it is now. Good, good. <laughs> nice one. The calculations are that you can change the energy consumption by a factor of 3.1 times when you're cooling your house and 2.6 times when you're heating your house compared to just a normal roof. Wow. Yeah, so that's pretty impressive. So it's not just a small change, it's a fairly significant change. I just think it's, it's simple. It's a simple concept. I assume that wax can keep changing phase back and yeah, forth. Back and, backwards and forwards. I don't know that would wear out. The Provided motor might it doesn't vaporise. Um, well, I assume it had it in a sealed container and then so it would stay in that sealed oh, container. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, I, I haven't pulled them apart and had a look at these, but I just think it sounded so simple and so clever. I just I love the idea. It sounds yeah, great. Fantastic. Three D printers have been a revolution to product design and development. It's allowed people with imaginings to bring their big ideas to life more easily than ever before. And here, fresh off the hotbed out of Texas A and M University, comes a three D printed electronic skin that will take wearable tech to another level. Matt, <laughs> where are we going to stop with wearable tech? We do talk yeah. about it being a, a real boon. We, we've got we? a segment every uh, show on wearable tech, but uh, it's so interesting. It, it is. So forget the little simple watch that we talked about before mm. with uh, area on the back of that, maybe a couple of square centimetres that can actually have that in contact. Wearable skin gives you a greater surface area. The answer to every biology, sure. biology question is surface area, of course. So if you want to monitor motion, Temperature, skin temperature, obviously, blood pressure, heart rate. Yeah, that's pretty easy with this. You have a wearable skin, but it's a 3D printed e-skin. So you can print it to suit the shape. You would obviously do some sort of scan of the part of the body you're going to put it onto. Then you'd 3D print it to suit that shape, put it on. It's flexible. It moves. And in stretching and moving, that's where it's giving you information back. So we've got clothing now that you're wearing and the whole thing. You could effectively print yourself a T-shirt. Well, you could, but I don't know that it's designed to be quite that large. I got yeah, the impression yeah, okay. that it would be used over something a bit smaller. So it might be... Yeah, a forearm sleeve or something. Yeah, something like that. A bit yeah. like a, a, a tattoo, or fake tattoo sleeve, yeah, yeah. but doing the same sort of thing with a, with a sleeve with this information. So just when you start to think about all the structures that are in that, the 3D printed structure in that, mm. and then as those various particles move in there, that's enough to give information back to a sensor that's built into it to then feed it back to a smartphone and away you go from there. Wow. And you just think, do we need the level of monitoring to this level? But maybe we do. And sometimes it's driven by sport. You see players in many football codes across the world that'll have a little lump in the middle of their back, which is typically a GPS sensor, and yeah. that's not relying on good old-fashioned satellites, because that's not accurate enough, typically the stadium will have sensors around it so they can track the movements very accurately. So you'll see in a game the fastest 10-metre sprint that a runner might do. And you probably couldn't get to that level of accuracy just with satellites, but with all those sensors around the ground, you can see this player that ran at 31.2 kilometres an hour faster than the other guy that ran at 30.9. So you get that level of accuracy, but that's got a, a, a lump in the middle of their back. When you talk about this, you think, well, they could just wear a skin over their arm, their leg, yeah. 
even their legs, let's say a player was coming back from injury, you could probably put it on a leg and you could actually have some sort of warning going off to the player if they're starting to push too far or too hard yeah, right. where they might potentially, that injury you might know, reoccur. Yeah, hamstring again. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So I just don't know where we're going to stop with all of this. Get up in the morning, put your second skin on to monitor what's happening with your body throughout the day. At least it would protect you from skin cancer, I suppose. But it is quite fascinating and I, and I really don't Goodness know where it's going to stop. But I'm, I'm going to say that your advice to students about getting to materials technology is, is a great sort of area of development. Maybe you could add a an asterisk next to that and say, if you don't like materials development, then maybe wearables, because that seems to be a boom industry. (laughs) As we become more and more unhealthy, we need more and more information to tell us how unhealthy we are. More realistic than reality. Hmm. AI has managed to enter the realm of hyper-realism and is now generating images of people that look more like people than real people. Sorry, I've got to say that again. They look more like real people than real people. Uh, Matt, what? I tried this experiment. It was a website that said we've got a range of images. Some are generated by AI and some are just photos of people. And it would bring up an image and it would say, do you think this one's real or AI generated? So I went through 10 photos it gave me one at a time and I look at it and I study it and I do my best. I go, oh, definitely real. Click. No, AI. Went through and did it. I got four out of ten right. I'm like, oh, wow. Right, I think I've got the hang of it now. I'll go and do it again. (laughs) I went through and did it again. Different ten images were put up, obviously. It wasn't the same ones. And I got four out of ten. I I couldn't get better than – I might as well have just closed my eyes and blindly guessed because I would have done better on the odds of saying 50-50 getting them right or wrong. What was fascinating – So here's the thing is that, you know, I think about all the advertising that's ever happened that has involved photos of people and whatnot. they they're people that are involved in the advertising, but we're now going into a world where you're going to see pictures of people marketing stuff that those people have never existed. Never existed, and they're not even necessarily based on a real person. And there's lots of tools out there. There's Dali 2. I've played around with Dali 2 a bit. Mid Journey, this experiment that this was done was using StyleGAN 2. So hang on, I've got, I've got to take this another step further. My brain is swimming right now. So a kid's born 10 years from now, and as they grow up, they start their face starts to take the shape of a face that's already been drawn. And so it looks like there's photos of them that existed. Ten years ago. Ten years ago. <laughs> I know your face. You were involved in yeah. an advertising campaign for rocket ships Back or whatever. in 2030, and it's actually 2060. <laughs> oh, no, I wasn't born until 2050. <laughs> you know. Well, sorry, that doesn't make sense. But anyway, it's, yeah. It's possible. Don't do the maths on that, folks. Um, yeah, it's possible that um, possible. you will grow into someone else's oh, AI's design of, of a body. And here's the thing that I found. When I was going through doing it, <laughs> oh, no. being as scientific and logical as I could in choosing what was real and what was fake, I'd look at an image and there'd be just something not quite right. Maybe the nose was a bit crooked or the ear was a bit funny. And my initial testing when I did some stuff with Dali too was it would draw buildings and physical objects fairly well. Mm. But humans had six fingers or oh. they had an upside down hand. So it just I found it did funny little things to humans. So when I'd see something that was a crooked nose or something that was a little bit funny with some part of their face, I'd go, ah, I've got to their AI, I know this is a fake one, <laughs> and I'd go fake and i go, that's real. And I thought, well, 
Yeah, because real humans sometimes have, have things that, that's right, they're a little bit different. And so then I went, ah, now I've got you. Now with the perfect faces, they're the ones that are AI. But of course, some humans look pretty good as well. <laughs> so there was no definite way for Anyone me. Anyone who's ever seen Brad Pitt <laughs> will know right. that sometimes humans are perfect. Exactly right. So what they did with this was they trained the AI tools on thousands, literally thousands of images that are out there to give them an idea or to give AI an idea of what things should look like without saying replicate any of those, just go and do the training on all those. Now, what was interesting further on this was that if the images were of white-skinned people, light-skinned people, then typically AI did a lot better job than drawing pictures of non-light-skinned people. Ah, right. And why was that? Because 69% of the images they were given to do the training on were basically white faces. Yeah, okay. So, again, that's just a matter of training. If you want to get them to draw yeah. people better that have not so white a skin, then you just need to feed more images into it. We're talking about machine learning <laughs> and they can go fast. <laughs> that's right. So, it's quite incredible. Now, based on that, when you create, that's just images of a still image, but of course you can use that for deep fakes for videos, photos and videos, all of that can be done from AI as it gets better and better. And it's taken such a short period of time. Yeah, I always hoped that at least we knew that uh, there was going to be some, they weren't going to get it right for a long time. No, but going no. from six fingers to now me getting 40% right in terms of picking AI from real, oh. that's happened, I would say within a year, we've gone from that. And even now, I, I have played around with a bit more with just ChatGPT can now draw images for you. And so I've given up on Dali 2 for the moment and I use ChatGPT to draw images and now I'm finding the images that draws of people are five-fingered people, people that mm. look like they're not from Tasmania, for example, apologies to any Tasmanian listeners, but people that are typically looking like normal people. So it has progressed very quickly. Well, I would like to just go on the record and say that I, for one, welcome our digital overlords. And when the end of days comes, I would like them to remember this and use me <laughs> as one of their minions <laughs> and hopefully give me some sort of creature comforts. If you're listening to us now while you're sitting in thick city traffic, you're going to really appreciate the next story coming out of Hull in the UK. With its ability to process extremely large data sets in real time, it's only natural that we should call on AI to untangle traffic congestion. And that is just what Hull City Council are doing. They're, they've given AI control to the buttons for their traffic lights. Matt, this is either going to speed things up delightfully or make for a hell of a hijinks they'll talk about for decades. Now, I hope when they do that, they still say, I only want green in one direction and red in the other, rather than just take control and then AI looks at it and goes, oh, there's not much traffic around, we'll just make it all green, everyone can have a nice day. <laughs> I'm assuming that's part of the programming. There's got to be some rules. <laughs> but it, it makes sense. And we do know that sometimes when you've got a line of traffic lights, with the standard in-road sensors that are used now, which are pretty rudimentary, hmm. you drive a car over, it picks up that a car drive over that sensor, and then the traffic lights have got an algorithm built in to say, which road do you prefer? This road's a busier road, therefore I prefer that, and a certain number of cars, this other one, or a certain amount of time, then I'll change the lights. Mm. Pretty simple. When you start to have a few traffic lights in a row, then there is the ability, but most local traffic authorities don't do it, but you can have them talking to each other to say, well, if you're green, make it green all the way so someone can flow through that way. Yeah, so you've got you've got a, a succession happening. Yeah, yeah, and all the cross streets are red. So there's that sort of programmability as well. What they've done in Hull is they've said, give up on those silly little old-fashioned sensors in the road. 
let's put some cameras along and let those cameras monitor the traffic so you can see it from a greater distance as well rather than waiting till you just get to the point where you're running over that sensor because they're not that far back from the traffic lights. Mm. Monitor the traffic on a larger scale. Monitor that traffic in terms of not just one main road but crossroads, etc., and then feed that into an algorithm to say what should you do with those traffic lights to keep traffic flowing as regularly as possible, as smooth yeah, as possible, and, and reduce that traffic. Now, their first tests, and again, this is very early in the learnings, their first tests have reduced congestion by 25%. That's mm. pretty impressive. Now, this has only been introduced in June 23. So it's only had about seven wow. months for it to learn and already to reduce traffic by 25%. But I'm wondering about like those little quiet streets that go onto a highway and they've got those traffic lights and they're all along things like Mossvale Road and whatnot in Sydney where you've got a little quiet street that needs a traffic light to get on and you've just got a little local traffic. You're that one car waiting to go on and you've got that stream of traffic. So the algorithm said we just need to keep that traffic flowing and you're there for half an hour waiting for your turn. And your one car doesn't count as much doesn't as all the hundreds of cars. The others, that's yeah. right. And unless it's someone like James Eddy sitting there that the AI overlords are saying, let's be nice to this yeah, guy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Remember he, he dedicated his that's life to us? That's yeah. right. Okay. Then essentially you might be sitting there for a while. So it'd be interesting to see how it flows and how they measure that 25% congestion. Now, they did pick on Hull for a reason. Hull is meant to be the eighth most congested area in oh, wow. all of the UK. So okay. that makes sense to pick a fairly congested area. But it does start to open up my ideas for when you get the cars communicating with the traffic lights mm. and with AI as well. So when you get more cars that are connected, then those cars can say, I'm coming along, I'm doing this speed, please let me on. Yes, sure, we'll change our lights to allow for that to come through. That starts to become pretty impressive as well. Yeah. One of the solutions I thought traffic congestion was to get fewer people living in the cities, but that doesn't seem to be a, a solution <laughs> that anyone's looking at. So this might be a, another solution there. So hopefully this is one of these stories we can talk about where AI is being used for the good of mankind, reduce our traffic burden going to work, reduce pollution, obviously, because you're sitting there in the car for less time, all sorts of good things and just maybe don't live on a side street in some of these busy cities. Well, I've got another image in my head here, and I don't know if you've seen the photo of when Sweden changed the side of the road that they drive. It was in the 60s. (laughs) And um, they went, I think, um, was it from the right-hand side to the left-hand side? And, um, yeah, there's a photo of just (laughs) hitting the van. Chaos. (laughs) Look it up, folks. It's a fantastic photo. I often think that it would be much better for the world if we all drove on the same side because so many times we hear, especially in Australia, that some new fantastic cars coming out in the US, Mm. but we won't get it because they're not going to do it in right-hand drive. Mm. Oh, how frustrating. But just, it'll be okay a few years after you made the change, but when you made that change, the road toll would go through the roof. People For sure. Oh. Yeah, so it'd be lovely to do it, but I just don't see it happening anyway, anytime soon. AI and Hull get it right. In the modern age, there are many things that we just take for granted, and the internet has got to be at the top of the list. It just works. But did you ever consider that in order for it to work, every single connected device on the planet has to be reading the time in exactly the same way, completely synchronised? Now, someone on the planet had to think of that. And so, folks, it is time for us all to raise a glass to David L. Mills. Few people can, cl- can claim enabling such an enormous impact as this man, who is largely unknown, Matt. Largely unknown. He passed away in January, so 
rest in peace, David L. Mills, but he had a much bigger impact on the internet than most people realise. He was the one who said, hold on, while we're trying to get all these different computers connected together and everyone's working on all these different protocols and communications and making sure it all works, has anyone thought about the time, the time yeah. synchronicity? And he was in an interview that I watched a video of and he said, well, the, the interviewer said to him, why did you think about this? Why did you go and pursue time as a thing? And he said, well, no one else was doing it. And it seems like a trivial sort of answer <laughs> to a really important question, but no one else was doing it. And the subtext of that was, hmm, and I thought it might have been pretty important, you know, making mm. sure these things all are knowing the right time. Now, you think, well, that's easy. You can just set the time and that's fine, but there's got to be a process to do that. Yeah. And he, he kind of told the joke that, it would be silly if you sent an email to someone and it arrived before it actually had been sent. And that would make no sense at all if well, you had your time on your computer out compared to the time of when my computer was sending that sort of thing. So well, if you look at the history of the, the formation of Greenwich Mean Time, there were train timetables. People were leaving one town and arriving before they'd left at their destination. Yeah. So they had to coordinate the times in England uh, to let the, time sh uh, the, the train schedules run. And that was probably a bit easier when you've got a physical device like a train, but when yeah, you're starting yeah. to talk about packets of data... Yeah, that that's right. You've got to get pretty important. specific. You've got to get down to the second, haven't you? Well, you've got to get even better than that. Well, sorry, that's, yeah, even... Okay, sorry, yeah, yeah, keep that's, going. That's right, but but that's the sort of, exactly what you're talking about with the trains, with GMT. You have that same situation. Now, again, you might think, oh, that's a bit silly, a message arrives there. But then when you start to talk about transactions that involve finances or going to a stock exchange making a buy order or a sell order mm. you really want to know that everyone's working at the same time david realized this and said let's work on this and let's work and he basically came up with what's known as the network time protocol now to do that it gets pretty complicated because if i say okay everyone here's the clock that's the time everyone connect to that and synchronize with that well, how far away am I from that clock and yeah. what is the path that my data's got to travel on? So if I get that time where I am and you get it where you are and you're closer to it than me, well, we're not going to be the same time, are we? <laughs> so it starts to get complicated. So what they've got now, what we're sitting on now, is we have a number of stratum zero devices. So they're not computers that you can connect to. They're ultra-precise timekeepers. You've got things like atomic clocks, GPS clocks, there's probably a few dozen of those around the world, distributed around the world, and it does change from time to time. A clock might be decommissioned, something might be brought back in, for example. In Australia, we would have some at a couple of the universities maybe. So we, we do actually have them here, but typically around the world, they're at uh, laboratories, observatories, even space agencies. So stratum zero devices, they're the ones that they agree, and these devices communicate with each other to agree, here is the time. Everyone agrees that this is the time. Then you've got Stratum 1 servers that connect to the Stratum 0 devices to have the time accurately, and then how far away they are, they make some allowance for that. Yeah. Okay, it's going to take so many nanoseconds for the signal to get from the Stratum 0 device to your Stratum 1 server. We need to allow for that in the breakdown of the actual time that you record there. And then Stratum 2 servers connect to those in a hierarchy that essentially go then across the world and that's what most of us connect to when we're trying to get the time. So for example in this studio we're sitting in I've got an internet connected clock in here and when I set that up I had to choose 
the server that I would connect to to get that time accurately. And then there were some estimations made in terms of how far away I am from that, how long it would take the signal to get from the Stratum 2 server to this clock. And then I had to build that time into the clock to say that will give me a really accurate time based on the distance I am away and wow. the, the, the lag time, if you like. You do that across the world and you then get computers across the world that are all at an accurate time. So when you have a time date stamp on something, you know that that's going to match somewhere else. Now, again, financial transactions is the most obvious one here, but we're talking about tens of milliseconds of accuracy, not nanoseconds of accuracy, but tens mm. of milliseconds of accuracy or tenths of milliseconds of accuracy. So you, you need to have them time, that time fairly accurate in all of that. Now, the, the clocks that we're talking about here, when you talk about some of those stratum zero devices, they're typically accurate, an atomic clock, for example, are typically accurate to a nanosecond a year. Mm. So you know that that clock, we set that at the right time a year ago. Now, within a nanosecond, it's still the right time. They operate by uh, the decomposition of cesium-137, I think it is. Yeah, 138, yeah. 137, something like that. Yeah. And there, But there are other clocks they're developing now. So it's just now. atomic decomposition there. Yeah, yeah, and so they're developing other ones because they're saying a nanosecond a year, well, that's not good enough. <laughs> they, they're getting to the stage where it, it'll be one in a 10 to the 16th level of accuracy. Wow. Yeah, so they're getting that level. But all of that... Somebody to think of that, somebody to design that. And yep. David Mills didn't do it all by himself, but he started the thought process to say, this is important to make sure all the different clocks are the same time. And thank you, David L. Mills. And so we've come to the end of the road. Now, before I break into some 90s boys to men a cappella, we'd better pull the pin and spare everyone some unnecessary suffering there. Thanks for another crack, uh, cracking tech talk, Matt. And I do note that I just got a message in my earpiece to say that the overlords thank you for your messaging ah, good. and you will be they looked after in the future. They've acknowledged me. Thank you. All right. Now, this jet suit race has got me interested. It's got me really thinking. I'm just looking at archive film from car racing from yesteryear shows how far we've come in that arena. Can you imagine jet suit racing and what that will look like in another 30 years or maybe 50 years? I'm off to watch the Iron Man trilogy right now. Thanks for tuning in again, folks. Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson is organically grown, completely free of pesticides and herbicides, and with personally handpicked fruit by Matthew himself. It's a pleasure to bring you this humble podcast, and we hope to catch you again in one week's time with our next enlightening instalment. I'm James Eddy, and we'll see you soon. 